and um, share God's word with you. As you know, I'm a teacher, so I'm going to be basically teaching us through the Gospel of Mark. And um, we have only one session, and so it is going to be a very quick uh, survey of certain sections from Mark's Gospel, chapter 11 to 16. I am obviously going to pick up a few what I think are important sections. A couple of them are very practical that uh, will apply to us. And a couple of them are things that there are questions we tend to ask about the coming of the Lord and those kind of things. And especially now with uh, the world really going through a very difficult time, everybody's asking questions about uh, what is this Corona and um, it's very interesting. Yesterday, somebody sent me, uh, this has been, I have been receiving this for the last three, four months, um, Corona. And so they write down C-O-R-O-N-A and then put the letters and the numbers for the letters from the English alphabet. And then uh, the six from this, uh, the six letters and then 66 from there and say 666. Oh, Corona is 666. Except that Corona is a generic name. And uh, there are so many corona uh, viruses, and you know people are uh, having fun uh, or uh, you know putting themselves in a panic. Uh, there are all kinds of questions like that. So I will not answer all of them, but uh, that also will be a question that I will answer. So thank you, thank you for the privilege of sharing God's word with you. So uh, as we look at this, let me just begin with telling you something that I mentioned last time I was with you. That is, we have not one gospel, but four gospels in the New Testament. Remember, none of these gospel writers ever knew there were going to be a New Testament. Paul did not know there was going to be a New Testament and that his letters will be put up one day in the New Testament. That was all in God's long-term plan. You know, even now, today, we do certain things. We don't know how the Lord will use some of the things we say and do. Uh, that is in his own way. So the beautiful thing about these four Gospels is that they are different. They don't, uh, I use the analogy of rice dish. You know, you can make so many wonderful things out of rice, but they don't taste the same. They don't look the same. So the four Gospels have a particular taste characteristic to it. And God wants us to enjoy, savor, learn from, be shaped by each of these Gospels. And today I'm using the Gospel of Mark. There are some very special things in the Gospel of Mark that we must learn. And of course, remember, according to most scholars, Mark was then used also by Matthew and Luke. So Mark is a important gospel for us. Uh, what is the key theme of Mark? As you see on the screen, it is the suffering Messiah. In the last session I had with you, especially from chapters 8 to 10, I read to you from those three passion predictions of Jesus. And every time the passion predictions come, the disciples miss it. Disciples don't get it. Uh, they are wondering what to do with it. They, uh, they think the Messiah has to be like what our grandmother told us, that the Messiah has to kick these Romans out. But this Messiah is saying that he's going to be kicked by the Romans. And so they struggle with that. And we also struggle with that today. 
Many of us want a Messiah who, who will do the miracles right now for all of us. Uh, many of us have a difficulty to think that part of the mystery of the gospel is that we have to go through the way of the cross. And so in the Gospel of Mark, if there is a special uh, theme or a key verse, it is Mark 10, 45. And there, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life. And so there is this emphasis on uh, self-denial cross-bearing and being a servant. You know, the disciples are really stuck on this whole question of who is the greatest? Who is the greatest amongst us? So in chapter 9, after Jesus tells them about the suffering, the story is they are arguing amongst themselves who's the greatest. Now, don't think that those poor disciples were so poor that they were fighting about these things. Let me tell you, we also still struggle with that. Even some of us in the ministry are worried about amongst us who's the greater. Am I a little greater than this? Am I, you know, my ministry? My, and we look at numbers and things like that. But Jesus' way is saying, in the kingdom, the one who serves is the greatest. And uh, what a privilege it is that we too can follow in the ways of the Lord. Now, I want to now enter into a major teaching today. And that is something that I want to take us through slowly because very many of us may not have heard something like this earlier. Okay, now I remember when I was baptized uh, 42 years ago, I thought, uh, if Jesus got baptized, I who am I? I should not get baptized. I mean, who am I? I should also get baptized. I must get baptized. So uh, that was kind of an argument given for our baptism that Jesus got baptized. But uh, let me ask you a question. Why was Jesus baptized by our dear brother John, his cousin, his relative? John the baptizer. Now, when you read the Gospels, especially in Luke and all that, you will find the baptizer, John, was inviting sinful Israel to be baptized. He said, listen, you guys, who do you think you are? Just because you're, you have some, you claim to have blood from Abraham, you think automatically you're saved. Let me tell you, if you don't produce fruit that is worthy of righteousness, you will be cut off. So repent. And a sign of repentance was come and get baptized. Now, so John was inviting sinful Israel to be baptized. And then here comes Jesus, steps in before him. And John says, sorry, this is not for you. It is for sinful Israel. And Jesus is telling John, sorry, John, you don't know and don't understand everything right now. But please, I have to be baptized by you because you are asking sinful Israel. And so, why was Jesus baptized? He was baptized on behalf of Israel. Now, let me take you through the whole Bible in two sentences. God's plan of salvation for the world began in a special way from Genesis 12. He chose Abraham. God so loved the world that he chose Abraham. And he chose Abraham to bring through his seed, that is Israel, salvation for the whole world, Genesis 12. But Israel 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who was then called Israel, and the children of Israel, and they came out of Egypt, they fail God's purpose to be a blessing to the whole world. And the whole story of the Old Testament is that. The whole story of the Old Testament is that. That Israel fails to be God's impact. So, please understand, when God's plan does not change, he is still planning to save the world through Israel. But now, Israel has come in the person of God himself. God steps down and becomes human, comes into the nation of Israel, is born. Matthew begins his gospel, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Jesus, remember, is become or is taken on the role of Israel. What do you, what do you think happens right after this baptism? He goes into the wilderness. How long? 40 days. How come? Israel was in the wilderness 40 days. Israel failed, but Jesus overcame. And so many things that Jesus does, you need to realize, are fulfilling God's plan for Israel. And he becomes Israel. Remember, he said, I am the true vine in John 15. Why did he say, I am the true vine, not I am the true mango? <laughs> because wine was a symbol of Israel. If you're making notes, take it down. Psalm 80 verse 8 onwards, 8 to 15. Psalm 80 verse 8 to 15. Isaiah chapter 5. Those are passages which, which talk about Israel as a wine. And so when John 15 tells us, Jesus says, I am the true wine. He's saying, I am the true Israel. And if you're part of me, you're part of Israel. And that Israel is redefined in the New Testament as both Jew and Gentile are part of in Christ. That's what the revelation, especially Paul, will teach his people. So let's go on now. In the Gospel of John, now we are in the second part. Jesus already has told his disciples, I am going to be humiliated, beaten, whipped, scourged, and then I'm going to be hung naked on a cross. And so now Jesus journeys to Jerusalem. You will find that phrase that he's on the way in chapter 10, verse 17 and 32, chapter 11, verse 1. He finally reaches Jerusalem. What is the first thing that we read in the gospel of um, of of um, Mark in chapter 11. The first thing is Jesus enters as Israel's king. Now that is specially referred to in the Gospel of John chapter 12 and verse 15. And when we read the prophecy in Zechariah 9, 9, that Israel, your king is coming, riding not on a white horse as a general, but on a simple baby donkey. And that is Jesus fulfilling scripture. He is Israel's king. And if he's Israel's king, he walks in with all this fanfare of some people. They are all expecting him to be the Messiah, including the disciples. But what kind of Messiah is he going to be? He has already given you a signal by not coming on a horse. He is not going to fulfill the desires of all the disciples of his. 
he is going to, he's already told them, I am not, I am going to my throne, but I have a very different throne, Peter. It's not the throne that you expect. And so he walks into Jerusalem. Now, this is the interesting part in the Gospel of Mark that we are going to look at. This is one of those beautiful passages. Here it is. Jesus walks up. And if you're looking at chapter 11, I, I wonder if uh, you know some people would like to participate and read for me. Uh, so if two or three people can read, the texts are coming on, on the screen. The first, uh, we're going to just read three parts of this story. So the first one is uh, chapter 11, verses 12 to 14. So if anyone can unmute and read, it'll be good participation. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, uh, I think um, maybe you got the passage wrong. Try again. It's Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, okay? Uh, for the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, I'm sure if you're like me, we, our first question is, Now, what? Jesus is, you know, so unreasonable. He looks at a tree and he's hungry. Okay, that's fine. And the tree is full of leaves, but it is not the time for the fruit to come. And he curses a fig tree, a poor fig tree. Right? I mean, uh, that's not fair, you'll say. You walk up to a mango tree and... Uh, you are hungry, you want mangoes, and then you look up and there is no mangoes. And you kick the fig tree, sorry, the mango tree and say, what is this mango? I'm hungry. And, and somebody says, ayo, Baba, this is not at all the time for the, fig, for the mangoes. Why does Jesus curse a fig tree? And now comes the next section. That is from chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. So if somebody else can please read that. Mark chapter 11, 15 to 19. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. Okay, thank you. Uh, that was King James, so some of the words were not the way we use it. But did you notice here the main point? Jesus goes into the temple, as Mark puts it, and what he does is in a section of the temple courts where, as you enter, uh, these uh, people were there to 
to change your currency. Like when you go to a new country, you can't be using the certain currency, you have to change currency. And if there are unscrupulous fellows there, they will make money out of it, and, but you desperately need it. So many times when foreigners came, they had to convert their money to the temple currency and there were people making money out of it. And instead of foreigners feeling welcome in the house, because Jesus says that purpose of the temple and the purpose of Israel was to be a blessing to the whole world. Instead, the temple, the house of God itself has become a place of corruption. And he says they are thieves, robbers. Now, when he says that, please remember, if you are recognizing the scriptures, in fact, if your Bibles have footnotes, they will tell you that these are passages he's quoting from in the Old Testament. And one of them is Jeremiah 7.11. Jeremiah walks into the temple and he tells the people of God, the people of Judah, listen, you guys, you have made this temple a den of thieves. And guess what is going to happen? God will destroy this temple very soon. And sure enough, in a few years, the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. Now, when Jesus walks into the temple and does this dramatic action, please remember, I know we grew up in Sunday school thinking we call this, in fact, some of our Bibles will have it as Jesus cleanses the temple. You know, um, what does that mean, cleansing the temple? Cleaning something. You know, we clean our uh, dishes in the kitchen. Why? Because we plan to use it the next day. Why did Jesus do this? Did Jesus cleanse anything? Let me tell you, that is not what happened. Jesus did not clean anything. He did what he did. And the next day, these fellows came back with their security guards to make sure next time we'll be ready for him. Next time, he cannot do this to us. We were not ready for it. Jesus did not clean anything. What did Jesus do? He was acting like the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets very often did dramatic, symbolic actions. Remember that? They would put on some yoke on them and walk around and they say, why is he walking with the yoke? He says, you are going to be under the yoke of foreign powers. So Jesus actually does not clean anything. We will soon find a good way to talk about this event because he did a dramatic action. Now look at the way Mark is going to tell the story. Chapter 11, verses 20 to 21. Somebody else can read. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed has withered. Thank you. Did you notice the way Mark has told the story? He started off with talking about the fig tree. Jesus cursed it. Then he put something after that. That is the story of Jesus in the temple. And then after that, he once again talks about the fig tree being withered. Now, it's very interesting Matthew is going to use this material in his gospel, chapter 21. And when you look at Matthew, the way he puts it is different. 
He will first talk about the temple event and then he will talk about the tree. He puts it two separate events. Did you see how Mark is placing the material? He puts it as a sandwich. So in uh, Markan scholarship, we use the word Markan sandwich. Mark loves to put two stories and put them together. He loves to do that because he wants you to read those two stories together. There are many Markan sandwiches. Now, this is one of the most interesting ones. He talks about the fig tree. See, what is a sandwich? Why do you call something a chicken sandwich? You don't call it because the bread is called chicken. Because it, there, there are two slices of bread or whatever it is, and, or bun, and what is inside gives a name to the sandwich. In other words, the fig tree story is only the bread. And then inside he puts the story of the action in the temple. Therefore, these two stories are to be read together. They both have the same symbolic meaning. Now, please remember this, that in the Old Testament, the fig tree, the wine tree, as I just mentioned, were symbols of Israel. If you turn to Hosea chapter 9, don't turn there, sorry, just write a note of it. You can look at it later. Hosea 9.10. Hosea 9.10, uh, God speaks about how he found Israel. And he uses both these analogies in Hosea 9.10, that Israel was like a wine and Israel was like a fig tree. And also in Micah 4.4, we read about God looking for fruit in Israel as a fig tree. Now, when God, that those are the texts, God looking at the fig tree and saying, where are the fruit? Jesus is fulfilling that same prophecy. So when he comes before that fig tree, the fig tree is representing the pain of God, that God has been working through Israel to bring about fruit. You see, all the stories of the Old Testament, all of those stories are about God's pain of trying to bring fruit out of Israel for the blessing of the whole world. Israel fails, Israel fails, Israel fails. So don't think of that as a disjointed one of point Jesus lost his school and got angry with the tree and cursed it and it withered. Jesus is, if you look at both these stories, he cursed the fig tree. And he did not cleanse the temple, he cursed the temple. Yes, you just heard me say that. Jesus did not clean or cleanse or clear the temple courts. He, like the prophet Jeremiah, using in fact the words of Jeremiah, pronounced judgment on the whole temple establishment by that one symbolic act in the temple. Now, what is going to happen? Basically, God is pronouncing judgment on Israel for Israel has failed to produce the fruit it was called to produce. And so, what happens? It's basically a prophecy against Jerusalem. 
it is a prophecy against the temple. The temple, remember, is the reason why the city of Jerusalem is called Zion, the place of God. It is a temple. And now when Jesus pronounces a prophecy against Jerusalem, it is a prophecy against Israel. And that prophecy is fulfilled, friends. If you see the screen, it's a painting of how the Romans came a just a few years later, when Jesus is prophesying this, it is around maybe 30 AD. And now, few years later, 40 years later, 40 years is not a lot, a long time. I have been following the Lord intentionally for more than 40 years now. It's not a long time. Jerusalem was destroyed. So, I want us to put all these things together into one whole. I started off with, I didn't have enough time to talk about many other issues, but Jesus comes. If somebody asks us, why did Jesus come? We will have a nice, good answer, right answer. He came to die for my sins. Now, true, you are not the only person. There are billions of people. He came to die for the sins of the world. But Jesus came to fulfill what God's plan always was. That is to bless the world through Israel. And since that nation of Israel fails, he takes the place of Israel. And he gets baptized in the place of Israel. He says, I am Israel, when he says, I am the true wine. He says, I am Israel. I will fulfill God's plans. Becomes part of the children of Israel as a son of David and son of Abraham. And but Israel has now to be punished and judged and Jesus takes on himself takes on himself the sins of Israel and that is what happens on the cross friends see when Jesus dies on the cross he's dying as the one who has taken the curse of Israel upon himself it's he takes the curse upon himself because he is now Israel. He has told himself, I am. From the beginning, he is acting as Israel. And the passage that many Jews struggle to understand then and today is Isaiah 53. It's a very clear passage there in Isaiah that my servant will take upon himself the sins of my people. And when you're reading the Old Testament without the coming of Jesus, it's not an easy passage to understand. And even now, Jewish people struggle with that passage. They hardly read this passage. Because when we tell them that Jesus is the Messiah, most Jewish people do not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But we who have understood and for us the grace of God has been given, the Holy Spirit has come and made this true to us. And there is another important thing that happens. Did you notice that? Mark will tell you in 1538, the moment Jesus died on the cross, there was something that happened in the temple. Very significant. Remember, Jesus earlier had come and did that drama in the temple, basically pronouncing judgment or, if you want to say, Jesus cursed the temple, not cleansed, but cursed the temple. And basically saying, this temple business is over. And when Jesus went on the cross... The temple curtain was torn from the top to the bottom, meaning God was saying, this business is over with. 
I know the temple will still hold on for a few more decades and it will be destroyed soon by the Romans. But from God's perspective, there is no more temple anymore. You know why? Very simple. The temple is now Jesus. Now, Gospel of John does that, doesn't he? In chapter 2 itself, he goes, the story that we read at the end of the Gospels in the Synoptic Gospels is found in the beginning of John. John decides to decide to put, he's not worried about chronology. And what Jesus says in John chapter 2 is, if you destroy this temple, and very clearly it says the temple, they didn't understand, was his own body. Why do you need another temple when God has given you this temple right now, which is the body of Jesus on the cross? Remember I said earlier, Jesus was coming as a king of Israel. He was going to be enthroned. And he's enthroned on the cross. This is his throne. This is what they could not understand, the disciples. This is the throne of God, the cross. This is where, through which, now the temple throne is gone. Now through Jesus and through the cross, we can go into the holy place. Amazing, wonderful, praise the Lord, hallelujah. This is the gospel. Now, very soon, Jesus will rise again. But he has opened the way for us to go into the presence of God. For those who have believed this message. By the way, there is a story in Mark's gospel. When this happened and Jesus cried out and he died, there was a pagan man in, uh, uh, at the foot of the cross. A centurion who said, truly he was the son of God. Now, whether he understood everything that we understand when we talk about Son of God, that's not the point. He somehow recognized him as very special. And it's very interesting, in the Gospel of Mark, he's the only one who recognizes him as a Son of God. So, it is again a sign that the whole world will one day recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. And the Romans destroy Jerusalem, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy in chapter 13. Now, let me go to another part of this uh, thing. First part I shared with you about the two stories put in a sandwich. Remember, fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, as we call it. But we realize now it is a cursing of the temple. That was Jesus basically saying, God is done with this temple business because he is now I am the temple. In fact, I wish I had time to explain from John chapter 10 on, on the day when they're celebrating the dedication of the temple. Jesus says, I'm the temple. I'm here. Anyway, we don't have time for all that. Right now, I want us to look at chapter 13. In chapter 13, the disciples are with Jesus in Jerusalem. Remember, most of these disciples were not, they were not the big city wallas, they were not from the cosmopolitan cities. They were from the small, you know, Galilean towns, fishermen. In fact, when they spoke, uh, people in Judea recognized their accent and say, ah, these fellows are from that village. They were small town boys. And so when they came to Jerusalem and saw the big stones, they were so, so said, you know, what they say in chapter 13, verse 1, Lord, look. What massive stones! What magnificent buildings! Chapter 13, verse 1. 
But Jesus says, verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, it's not easy when you're watching something so big and somebody says, you know what? This is all going to come down. You cannot believe that. And so the disciples ask him a question. Verse 4, 13 verse 4. Tell us, when will all these things happen? Okay. What has he just now told them? That is going to happen. This buildings will be brought down. When will all these things happen? Then there's another question. And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now, chapter 13 of Mark has many, many things there. And in times like this, when people want to talk about prophecy, Jesus is coming soon. They selectively pull out some verses from here and there. What does Jesus do? There's a lot there we will not have time to look at. What does Jesus do? Look at chapter 13, verse 28 onwards. He will use an analogy. This time again, he'll use a fig tree, but he'll use an analogy and say, see, when the uh, 28, as soon as his twigs get tender and his leaves come out, you know that summer is near. When you see certain signs, you know that summer is coming in a few days. Now, he says, even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at your door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have passed, happened. Now, this is where I need to share with you two ways that people have looked at, two major ways, maybe three or four, but let me tell you how the popular way this passage has been read especially after 1948. Nobody could think of interpreting this passage, this generation will pass away before 1948. Please remember, this, this gospel is not written for those who come after 1948, that is you and me. Many people started preaching that coming together of the nation of Israel is 1948. That is true in a special historical sense. And they use this verse to say, the fig tree is the nation of Israel. Now, I have just now shown you, yes, it can be. But here Jesus has used the fig tree only as an analogy that when you see some certain signs on the tree, you know summer is coming. But some people have chosen to say this fig tree is Israel. And so when Israel is formed again in 1948, one generation after that, and then people started calculating. So in the 70s, when I came to the Lord, there were pe people preaching and saying, one generation is 40 years. So 1948 plus 40, 1988. So there was a great move among people and preachers, including Jacob Cherian, who believed that somehow something will happen in the 80s. You go and look at books like Hal Lindsay's book. He will say 80s. After some time, he will say 90s, it's going to happen. After some time, he will say 2000 is going to happen. Such preachers keep on changing dates. Jesus is coming soon. And there was a book that was written by an ex-NASA scientist called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. Not only that, he even told the date in September, 1988. Everybody was waiting for it. You know, four and a half million copies of that were sold. Can you imagine 45 lakh? copies of that book. Everybody is waiting for September 1988. Why? Because they read this passage as one generation is 
40 years. Now, when 1988 came and left, now what do you do with this passage if you are still holding on to this interpretation? And that is, some people said, you see, God is very gracious. So the generation he decides is not 40. It can be 50 also. So then 50, if it is, now you wait for 1998. Right? And 1998 comes 50 years or over, then he said, no, no, God is very, very gracious. So he will give you another one more, 10 more years. So anytime soon it can happen. So it's going to be 2008, 50 years or over. Then now somebody says, no, it is 60 years. Then it's 70 years. Then some people say, God is very, very gracious. So he'll move it again. And so this kind of interpretation of this passage has been going around. But you know what? If you just read the passage carefully, what has Jesus said in that chapter? This temple will be destroyed. When is it going to happen? He says, in this generation. In this generation, there were disciples of Jesus who would have remained and seen the destruction of Jerusalem. If Jesus died around 30 AD, this is just about... Some people say more after 30 AD, we are not 100% sure. But in one generation, Jerusalem is destroyed. You don't need 1948. And by the way, if we were sitting around uh, in you know 200 years ago, we would be reading this passage. We would never come up with this interpretation of 1948. So friends, first thing, very clearly, Jesus prophesied this and he cursed the temple. The temple is actually destroyed in one generation. But then there is also verse 32. Verse 32 says, but about that day, which day? Not the day of destruction of the temple. That came in 70 and it is in our past. That day when they asked, when will the son of man come? He says, well, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Now, in other words, what Jesus is and his answer has two parts. The first part is the destruction of Jerusalem, which already finished. It's fulfilled. So some of those things that are mentioned in chapter 13 are fulfilled. But what about that final day? We are waiting for the day of the Lord. That's the words in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord, the final day when God will bring in, usher in the kingdom. And we talk about it as the coming of Jesus. Jesus says, we don't know, no one knows, not even the son, meaning as a human, Jesus is saying, I also don't know as a human being, God knows. But the interesting thing is, Pastor Abraham, is there are preachers who do know. <laughs> Jesus says, no one knows, the son doesn't know. So some preachers will say, okay, Jesus said you don't know the hour, but maybe you can know the week, we can know the month, we can know the year. Very interesting. What Jesus is saying, Ayo Papa, don't waste your time trying to figure out when Jesus comes. So please, all my dear friends here in Amazing Grace AG, please don't listen to preachers who will tell you, this is the year Jesus is coming. Let me tell you, Jesus can come this year too. Why not? But he could have come last year or following year too. But because we are in a pandemic, that doesn't mean Jesus is coming now. And we don't know how long this pandemic is going to go on. We don't know the time the Lord's coming. We are waiting for his goodness 
and his mercy. Okay, so I have dealt with two important things today. Number one, I have told the story of the fig tree and the temple. I have one more uh, quickly important thing and then I will be done. One, one and one and a half, two things quickly. Okay, so uh, we have looked at that two stories in Mark 11, the Mark and amazing sandwich of the fig tree and the temple. They are one story that God's judgment comes on Israel. Because you know why God judges Israel? Because he loves you and me. He doesn't love Israel more than he loves Indians. He doesn't love Israel more than he loves Chinese. And I must say this, in a time when everybody thinks in making joke about Chinese and Chinese virus and this and that, do you know that there are 100 million of our brothers and sisters, Chinese brothers and sisters, one of the largest churches in the world, one of the most powerful churches. So they are our brothers and sisters. So let's not just talk about Chinese as a general word and make fun of them. They are our brothers and sisters. Now, the Chinese government and their policies we may not agree with. I don't agree with some of our Indian government and policies. That's different. But the whole world, God loves the Africans and God loves the Brazilians and the Indians. So God had to finish off this part of Israel so that Israel through Jesus in Christ, the whole world could be embraced in that. And so we have seen that. Now, I just want us to look at this story. Sometime I think when I did the Gospel of Luke, I may have mentioned this. There is this story in chapter 12. Again, this story is found in um, uh, other Gospels uses it. We have a story from Sunday school. We have heard this story of a woman, a widow actually, who comes in and puts two small copper coins. Think of it like two five rupee coins, two five rupee copper coins. And somebody in the church sees her doing that. Oh my, that's all she has. But Jesus says she has given more than everybody. So let somebody read that chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in, put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, we have all heard this story from our childhood. And uh, preachers use this to say she put in everything. I have heard of preachers who have insisted uh, you know, to their people, I want all of you to open your wallets and put everything today. I am going to put what is in my wallet. Now, some of them are turning and the husband turns to his wife and says, thank God, I was planning to put a lot of cash today. I don't have any cash left here. Good thing. You know, that kind of whole thing. This story has been used, and I'm sorry to say, has been abused but not understood many times. What is the point of this story? Now, if you look at your Bible, you will see something that I believe Mark, the writer, will be upset with because we have divided, first of all, his 
gospel into chapters. Remember that chapter headings came much later. Chapter headings came in the 13th century, in the beginning of the 13th century, in the 1200s. Mark does not know your chapter. Secondly, verse divisions came in the 16th century, in the middle of 1500s. And as a result, and not only that, in our modern translation, my Bible has from before verse 41, a big space, and it says a widow's offering. And there is a story before that, again, that is given a separate heading. And as a result, we don't see the connection between passages. That is why you and I have learned a bad habit of reading verses without looking at the whole context. So what do we learn from this story? Let me say what we don't learn. This is not a story about giving. This is not a story that, you know, I come to church and I bring, it is in the first month of the, you know, first week of the month and I bring all my money which I received as salary and nowadays we are in a situation where many people have lost their jobs or their salaries have been you know radically reduced in every place pastors are struggling we know that reality in many places and and real challenge so this is not a story about coming to church and putting everything and going back home and the children say daddy what about lunch today said sorry son I followed Mark chapter 12 and the story and I put everything in the church. This is not a story about giving. Then what is it about? Well, let us look at the previous passage. See the context in chapter 12 verses 38 to 40. Would somebody else please read 38 to 40? Jesus also taught, beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. Okay. I, I like that translation. They what did he what did he says? They cheat. What did they? Uh, they cheat widows out of their shamelessly out of their shamelessly uh, cheat widows. Okay. Now in in the other translations, many of you will have the word. They devour widows' houses. And uh, this translation tries to explain devour that they cheat them and take away their houses. Now, how do you do that? How do you devour a widow's house for lunch? How do you do that? Well, this translation, I, I wonder which one this is, but uh, it's, it is explaining it. They cheat them shamelessly. Probably they what they do and go to a poor widow, you know, and say, sister, we know your husband was a good man, but unfortunately he died and you have these four children. You're really, really struggling. The only way we can think of is we will help you get a loan, but, uh, you know, we will have to, it, there's a long procedure. We will help you with that. Don't worry. Uh, but all you have to do is you'll have to sign some papers. 
okay now because uh, that's how it is uh, see this little house you have well you can uh, you use that you can use that as your guarantee and then uh, we will give you this loan and so we do that in a very clever way and when these religious teachers come to help you you trust them and then finally when she's unable to pay that money back they will come back and say sister sorry sister but these people are really coming after us and they are asking for that loan and i'm sorry there's no other way we will have to sell this house and what they have done is they have themselves robbed a poor widow of that little house she had now please note in your bibles you have all these numbers mark does not know anything about these numbers please note in your bible you have these spaces and headings mark knows nothing about them in fact we have messed up his point by removing these two stories and putting them as two separate and we don't read them together what we have here friends is not a story about how we should give 100% no pastor gives 100% nobody should no member should give 100% you have to take care of your children this is not about giving it is about a failure of giving see if the scribes and teachers are following scripture by the way the scripture is very clear in the old testament look at deuteronomy 14 and many other passages there are very clear teachings about tithing what is tithe tithe means 10% so if you give 8% is not tithe if you give 12% is not tithe tithing was for three groups of people very clear always it was for three groups of people it was not only for levites read the texts it is for the levites because they did not have a portion it was also for the poor within the community within the community that means uh, orphans widows who are poor people with a needy people within the community and the third amount should go for outsiders who are also needy foreigners who are not part of israel so that was why the tithe was given in the old testament i believe in the principle of tithes and i say we, that is a benchmark we can begin with i would say that if we fail to give to begin with kindergarten that is kindergarten learning to give there are amazing people like we must learn from john wesley and others go online and and read about john wesley's giving and it 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 will challenge us so even if you do the bare minimum kindergarten level give 10% the scribes should have made sure that widows in their community are taken care of so that a widow in israel would be sufficiently well dressed her children would be taken care of and she would say how how blessed i am that i am part of a community that takes care of a widow like me but actually she has come to that condition but all she has is two coins and even then she comes to worship god she is still holding on to her god even though the scribes have failed her and her own community members have failed her so this story is an amazing story friends it's a story that challenges all of us that in our giving let us keep the very much the needy in mind during this time i have been calling many 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 of my friends and some of them have been calling me especially pastors i keep asking them how are you do you have enough food in the house and then some of them have said pastor our giving has come down very badly but what we have done is we have identified 
in our community, those who are needy, and we have taken food grains for them. Now, all churches don't need that. Maybe in a, in a church like yours, there may be, I don't know, few maybe, if at all, who are so needy about food and grains. But the fact is, the purpose of our giving is to meet the needs of the others, the poor, the needy. I know, I know Amazing Grace AG Church gives a huge percentage of your giving for others. Don't spend it on yourself. You have not built your own building, but you have helped build beautiful buildings for others. You have helped, and I rejoice with you. I feel like in some small way, I'm also part of your friend. I, I take that pleasure. And you have taken care of the needy and the poor. You have supported others. Keep doing the good work during these times, even more. There is great need everywhere during this time. There's great need. Let us be even more generous in our giving through the church. And we can help the church leadership to identify some needy people. And let us give even more during this time to help the needy around us. Because this story says the pain of God, when God's people, even those who are holding the scriptures, who are teaching, preaching, we are not concerned about the needy around us. If that is it, the community has failed. But I want to say, as a church, I know you have. But let's also, in our own personal family times, in our own personal families, challenge ourselves and say, during this time of pandemic, of course, the one reaction is all of us have become very, you know, anxious. We may become even, even more withdrawn and trying to make sure we have enough money for the next so many years. Let me say, we don't know about the next so many years. Let us see how, by God's grace, we can stretch our giving, even as families and even as a church um, and as individuals. May God help us to learn from the story. God is looking for us to be generous to those who are needy around us. My time is up, and I just want, uh, I've talked about three important things. One about Israel, the fig tree, and the cleansing of the temple. I then talked about how the prophecy about Jerusalem being destroyed, the temple being destroyed, and that happens. And Jesus says, in a generation that will happen. But the coming of the Lord, there's in two parts, that no one knows. And the third thing I have just not talked about is God is challenging us to be generous. During this time of pandemic, let us not become tight-fisted because we are worried about our own. Okay? Let us give and trust the Lord for tomorrow. The last thing that I want to mention in the Gospel of Mark, there is a special emphasis on women. In the Gospel of Mark, somehow women disciples turn out better than the men disciples. <laughs> uh, for example, we read in chapter 14, uh, verse 50, 1450, when Jesus is arrested, it says, everyone fled. Everyone. All the macho men, Peter included, They all fled. And at the cross, we read in chapter 15, verse 40. 15, verse 40. That 
some women were there beside the cross. Three are mentioned by name. And then we read in chapter 16 that women came to the tomb because they were not satisfied with the way Jesus was. They didn't have much part in burying him. They came with spices. I mean, these are expensive things, but unfortunately, they could not anoint Jesus' body. He was risen. Women are shown positively in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, most pastors will tell you that uh, if not for the women in their church, the church will not go very far. And uh, yet, of course, leadership, we don't give too many to women. We still have a lot of uh, cultural blinders. We will find a Bible verse to support that. But um, the Gospel of Mark says a lot of wonderful things about women. Um, I, I am going to close in a minute, but I just want to mention um, Pastor Abraham and Pastor Prem, I will send you a uh, by WhatsApp a, um, a video produced by Bible Project on the Gospel of Mark. Now, some of you who are reading your English Bibles, especially if it is any modern translation and not King James, when you come to chapter 16, there's an interesting situation that your Bible will say that your translation will say that, uh, except King James, that their verses from 9, the last chapter, verse 9 to the end, were not there in many early manuscripts. Now, that's the truth. So this was written a little later, may not have been in the original copies of Mark. And how do we understand that? That is uh, in this video, short video on the Gospel of Mark, Bible Project. By the way, for those who are, don't know what I'm talking about, go to YouTube and search for Bible Project. There are close to 200 videos, and now I find they have done it in a few Indian languages, including Tamil and Hindi. Uh, these are very well-done videos, which can teach you about books. Uh, books uh, kind of summarizes the books very well. And uh, most of the time, I found them very helpful. And uh, the guy, main theological guy behind that is a guy called Tim Mackey. M-A-C-K-I-E. His teachings are also pretty, pretty, pretty good. Very good. In fact, I enjoy listening to that. So I will send you so that you can send it to the people in the group. You can kind of read, uh, listen to that. It's a short 10, 11 minute video and um, you will have a whole summary view of the Gospel of Mark. So friends, let me just close with this. Today, you and I are called to follow this crucified Messiah. There is only one way for the follower of Christ, and that's the way of the cross. And that is something specifically our beloved brother who has written the gospel, Mark, has shown to us. Of course, there are many wonderful things else in this gospel, but these are some of the things that I could bring to you. Once again, thank you, Pastor Abraham. Thank you, friends. Thank you, Pastor Prem. Really appreciate you uh, giving me this privilege. It's always a joy to be with you. Uh, and uh, the, we are gathered as the church. Very often I was listening to a message of my Guru Gordon Fee, uh, who says the biggest problem we have is we go to church. We should not be going to church. 
we have to assemble as the church. The church is not that building in Ryan School. The church is we. We are the church. And even today, we have assembled as a church. Yes, using, thankfully, the technology God has helped humans to develop. And we have assembled as a church. We don't have to go to church. We are the church assembled. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to come with you, dear friends. And I thank you for your love and friendship.